Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Allison here, and I'm excited to do another interview with an author whose book has just hit the market. I'm so excited about this hour ahead of us. I'm here with Michaeline Duclef. She is a correspondent for NPR's Science Desk. In 2015, she was part of a team that earned a George Foster Peabody Award for its coverage on the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And prior to joining NPR, she's here with her dog, by the way. He'll be joining <laughs> through our podcast. But prior to joining NPR, she was also the editor at the journal Cell, where she wrote about the science behind pop-up culture. She has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and uh, we also had a little conversation before starting the show. She also has a master's degree. She's uh, got a history or uh, education in winemaking, which uh, that'll have to be a sidebar conversation between uh, she and I. Uh, but right now she spends her day with NPR raising her daughter, Rosie, who is a uh, a key character in her book that she's written that we're going to talk about today uh, um, and uh, resides in San Francisco. So thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So let maybe let's, I haven't actually said the name of your book here. So this is Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy helpful little humans. Uh, so I'm so curious to know how a, um, a science reporter with a chemistry degree who knows how to make wine <laughs> embarks on this journey, which you made a major life sacrifice to collect the information and, and put this, this contribution out to the world. So tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really starts with Rosie, right? So we, Rosie is five now, but when she was around two, three, 
we really felt like we were uh, kind of failing <laughs> miserably as parents. Like she's a wonderful little girl. She's whip smart, but she's also incredibly hot tempered and fiery. And she was just kind of running our household and we really didn't know what to do. And I read a ton of books. You know, I thought science is going to save me. Science is going to teach me to be a really good parent. And I just kept feeling like time and again, I would try the advice and it would just fail or it would make things worse. And um, it just happened to be asked by NPR to go into a little Mayan village to do a story uh, for about parenting around the world about, it was actually on attention, which is an interesting question about how the kids there pay attention. But what I saw just like, I mean, it floored me. It changed my whole way, the whole way I thought parenting could be when what I, how I saw the moms relating to the children, how, um, how calm and gentle the parenting was. And at the same time, how effective it was. Um, the kids were respectful and kind and incredibly helpful. Um, one morning we were talking to a mom and her 12 year old daughter was on spring break and she was sleeping in because I'd watched the shark movie and she woke up, walked past me and her mother and just started doing the dishes. Like, voluntarily nobody had asked her or anything and I asked her mom like you know is this does this often happen you know like it was I was surprised and her mom was like well you know she's 12 so she knows what needs to be done so she does it you know and I was just like what you know and I think what stood out the most was just how little conflict there was between the the parents and the children and so after this um visit I kind of thought oh maybe the Maya families know something or but then I went up to the Arctic about six or seven months later and I saw the same thing. <laughs> and I saw this like incredibly calm, gentle parenting um, with these kind, generous, helpful kids. And, and then I started digging a little bit more and realizing, oh, this is actually a very common way of parenting around the world and likely parenting for thousands of years. And we don't really talk about it that much in the U.S. <laughs> so, so I want to have you share that part, which is really, again, where the book sort of starts, which is talking about how we came to think about parenting in a Western way and why that is weird and why psychology writes so much disproportionately about this, really, the mi- the minority way is right. overrepresented. So to talk about weird parenting. Yeah. So uh, like about maybe almost 10 years ago, um, psychologists started looking at you know, who gets, who gets studied in psychology experiments. And there's this huge bias for mostly European American and some, some European participants. So almost the entire uh, psychological literature is on this very small sliver of humanity. Um, And all the other cultures, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of cultures in the world get very, very little attention. And the problem with that is what they, what they found is that actually European American Western culture is really strange. It's um, if you look, we behave quite differently on a lot of psychological tests than like kind of the rest of the world in a way. And if you go to a lot of indigenous communities, a lot of hunter gatherer communities, they will all like, whether you're on in Africa, Asia, or South America, they will, they will all actually respond to psychological studies more similarly than than we do to the rest of the world. And one of the anthropologists, David Lancey, started looking at the same thing with parenting. And he started to see that, like, it's the same. We are actually this really, really strange 
brew. <laughs> we do this very, very strange technique and have these very, very strange techniques that you really don't see anywhere else in the world and probably has not been around for all of human history. Um, and so they coined this term weird. It's, it's Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. And it, you know, it's basically Western Europe and America, Canada and Australia, right? And the thing about it is, is that many of the things that we do, there's no real scientific evidence that they're good for children. They haven't been used, you know, for, like I said, like 200,000 years. Um, a lot of them make our lives harder. Um, and um, so it's kind of like, well, wh why are we doing them? And, and there's just other ways, you know, there's a lot of other ways. And if you look around the world, you can kind of see this common way of doing it um, that we actually kind of go against often. Yeah. And we're, and we're, I think you said 12, we're only 12%. Like we truly are the minority. So we may yeah. see it as our truism, but we forget our truism is based on this like very small data point. And to your point, is it really working when we're constantly in conflict when we have kids with anxiety and depression? Like, I don't know why we're so sold on this. We don't, we don't actually seem to be very happy with how we're parenting anyway. So it's, it's a good thing that you're now saying, let's pull back the lens and look at how other people have done this and people that are enjoying it and are not exhausted by it. And their kids are turning out with all these character traits that we all want that we're not, that are not produced by the way we're doing things in the Western educated, industrial, rich, democratic. I think I probably misspelled weird there, but <laughs> weird. Yes. Weird. Yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. Like there are some issues we have, right. And, and incredibly, if you look at the issues we have and you look at what these other, other parents do around the world, you can see how they're actually quite they will actually quite fix the things that the problems that we have, like the anxiety, right? This is huge, right? If a normal child in, in Canada or the US, you know, one in three is going to be anxious or have some anxiety problem by the time they're 16, like if that's a normal child, then like maybe we should reassess kind of what normal normal parent parenting is. And that's that's really what Hunt Gather Parent is about, is kind of like, ooh, maybe we, we by looking outward at some other cultures, we can start seeing our own culture kind of with a a different, a different view, a different lens. Yeah. I want to also just share with people again, to encourage them to, to pick up the book. You were so beautiful in that you literally took time off from your job. You traveled with your three-year-old daughter. You handed her over to these, to strangers. You asked you, can I sleep in your house? Can I lie in your hammock? Can I go on your hunt with you? Right. Because you also yeah. went to Tasmania. Tanzania, um, Tanzania, 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 excuse me. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes. Different. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, you, and you were courageous in doing that, but also courageous in being vulnerable in that you share the fact that, you know, you're sitting there with these people and your daughter's having tantrums or wanting to grab hair barrettes at the store <laughs> and, and, and having to deal with that sort of willful three-year-old as you're writing a book about parenting. They know you're here to study parenting yeah. and you're just so willing to share your journey and, and to integrate your learning into what you were seeing there. And, and, and I'm going to ask you about those different locations and, and your team model in just a second. But, um, you know, I think that it was helpful to me in reading it too, was that as much as these cultures are ancient, they're not ancient like, like relics, like 
Uh, oh yeah, yes, yes. There's a there's a relevancy, you know. There's they're still getting on on snowmobiles and they still are talking on their cell phones and they're still picking up. Like there's it's it was so relatable. Um, so so just so people know that. But take us to your to your first stop then, um, which was uh, the the Mayan culture yes. and and how you developed the team model and how that started there. Is I think you actually bring up a really good point. So the people are not ancient, right? The cultures are ancient. They've been around, you know, Western culture is ancient too. The difference is really is that they have parenting traditions that are really ancient and they value like the traditional, just, you know, traditional ways. Our parenting uh, techniques aren't deeply rooted in history. They're very new, right? So absolutely, these people are thoroughly modern for lack of a better word. So like in the Maya village, you know, 16 year olds walk around with their cell phones in their faces, you know, and like, you know, one of the little girls we talked to, you know, she loved to watch CSI and she wants to be like a forensics investor, right? So it's, yes, absolutely very, very different than you think. So we first, I first went there with Rosie um, because that's where this journey started, you know, with NPR. And we went back to the, the village where I met these incredible moms. And the Maya, the Maya village is, is one of the most wonderful places I've ever been to because so this idea that in, in Maya culture, there's actually, in, Maya, in many of the Maya languages, there's actually not a word for control. Like you don't control people, you don't control animals. It's, um, it's based on, in the parenting relationship there too, and what this book is about, is it's based on collaboration. It's, and, and I didn't understand, it's taken me like years to really understand this because we think about everything in terms of control, right? Who, the, the parents controlling the child, the child's controlling the parent. And, and what these moms, what I've learned from them was this way of working with the child and collaborating with the child um, to accomplish kind of a sim similar goals. Um, and, and, and I think the other thing about it is, is they also value the child as like a source of knowledge which is very different than what we think, right? So we think that we know the answers and we're teaching the ch children answers and we're, we're the source of knowledge and it flows to the children. And what they taught me was that when that actually children have something to give back to the parent and the parent can learn from each individual child. And once I started relating to Rosie this way, when she was three, four, our relationship completely transformed. I, I, I can't, I can't exaggerate it. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating it. Like, because I started listening to her and I started valuing her views and her contributions in our home. And it was like magic. It was like all this tension between us melted. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's incredible experience to, to collaborate with, with, with your child instead of con controlling and trying to force your agenda on them. It doesn't mean that I, I'm doing what she tells me to do by any stretch of imaginations. I have an agenda and I have a, you know, I need her to brush her teeth. I need her to be kind. I need, but it, but it's, it's, it's listening to her to figure out the best way for, for us to get there is really what they taught me. Yeah. And, and so, and I, again, I thank you for writing it in with so many stories and anecdotes where that concept is really yeah. brought to light. You know, I was reading one with the, uh, you know, just the trying to make the shish kebabs for yes. a dinner party, right? <laughs> yes, this is a great example. Can you share that? Because I think that's a really great example of like, you know, she doesn't, you, you, you end up 
where you you end up getting what you want if if you stay on her track, but you take this longer patient route that honors her and the collaboration turns out beautifully. So I, I'm teasing yeah. the story, but go ahead. Would you share it again yes. here for us? So I was making kebabs for a dinner party. And, you know, one of the things that I learned from the Maya moms is to welcome, to, to invite children over to help. Like chores and tasks are done together. There isn't this like, you go f- to make your bed or you go clean the ki- kitchen. It's like, come, 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 my love, come, my child, come into the kitchen and help me make kebabs. But Rosie loves this. She loves to come run over and help. And so she comes over and she runs and she starts making this giant chicken kebab, which is only chicken, like sticking every piece of chicken we have onto the stick. And I'm like, kind of freaking out, like we're going to run out of chicken for this dinner party and we're going to have an one all chicken kebab. And I kind of do what I've done, my, you know, with the way my own mom treated me was I was like, no, that's not right. You know, we can't make an old chicken. And I kind of take the chicken kebab from her hand and I try to fix it. And and she starts screaming, right? Because because I'm not valuing and I'm not listening to her. And she runs into the other room and, you know, doesn't want to help. And, you know, she's crying and it was just a really hot mess. And then I started reading interviews with the Maya moms and the researchers, that, the psychologists that study these communities. And I, I realized, oh, like I thought Rosie wasn't collaborating with me, but I'm not collaborating with her. I'm not paying attention to what she's doing and valuing her contribution and letting her contribute. I'm not letting her, you know, help make decisions about the meal. And so I tried it again, like a couple weeks later, I got the kebabs. I set up the exact same scenario. And I said, Rosie, come, come help me make, come my love, come help me make the kebabs. And she didn't want to come. And, and, you know, lots of Western psychology shows, I mean, this is incredibly demotivating for somebody if they feel like, they've been rejected if they feel like, right, that their ideas aren't valued. So she didn't want to come. And I said, you can make whatever kebab you want. (laughs) And she said, really? You know, and she comes running over and she actually starts making the kebab the way that she wanted to do it. I think she started adding a little pepper into it. So it was like a giant chicken with a little bit of pepper. So, which I thought was interesting. And I took the kebab and I accepted it. And I put the kebab onto the pan next to the other ones. And um, lo and behold, she started making the kebabs like I was making them. She started like putting the mushrooms in the, and she, she started looking at what I was doing and she started participating in what I was doing. And we started working together. Like a lot of the researchers say, like one organism with, with multiple arms, like we were, you know, I would put chicken on and she put a mushroom on and we were like, we were having this incredibly beautiful, like collaborative moment. Um, and then she got tired and she like ran away. <laughs> but, but what I realized is that it's like, I mean, even if she hadn't started doing what I, you know, what I wanted her to do, the fact that I just valued her contribution in such a little thing, right. Just made this huge difference in our relationship and in, in our, in our experience together. Um, and have, and then, you know, Another beautiful piece that comes out, and again, you, t- you travel over the three cultures, but you say that there is similarities in the way that all of these work, was this sort of patient, you know, this patience that yeah. they're not there yet. And yes. it doesn't mean it was a fail because she didn't suddenly start alternating peppers with mushrooms with chicken <laughs> that, you know, you could let go of this timeline and agenda. And she did get into this cooperative act and did start because you modeled 
And, yeah, and with the modeling, right. it moves with time. This modeling piece is huge if we would just stop thinking that it has to be on some incredibly short timeline. <laughs> right. That if you're not doing it right right now, then then you're not you're not doing it right. Yeah, the, the modeling is huge, right? Because what was I modeling before? Right. When I was like, no, that's not right. That's not how you do it. This is how you do it. Like I'm modeling like bossiness. I'm modeling inflexibility, right? And like, whereas if I accept her contribution, I'm modeling cooperative collaboration, you know, um, kindness, you know, <laughs> um, right. The modeling is huge and, and the patience is huge too, right? It is this idea. And I heard this from so many parents around the world. It's this idea step-by-step, little-by-little, you know, but you have to include them. You have to listen to them and you have to value what they're doing and their contributions, even tiny, tiny, tiny contributions. You know, kids are like, I think Hunt Gather Parent makes a really good case and shows the science that like kids are really wired from the beginning to collaborate and work together with their family. But if that family doesn't include them or value the contributions they're making, then they become demotivated. And, and, and that's really where Western culture like splits off and that, you know, by six, seven, a lot of kids don't want to help, help their family. Um, and, and I think it comes from that fact that they're not accepting the kebabs. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, here we, we, we know about neuroplasticity and how the environment shapes, you know, the wiring. And if you compare how much the contribution of a, a toddler, a three or five, you know, is they, they might be doing it sloppily, not to our standard, slowing down the getting the, the meal ready for the table or whatever. But if you have the patience and you and you go the, the, the long road and you value that contribution, then you end up with the 12-year-olds who come home and notice that the dishes aren't done and just step up, up because they literally, they're wired from that early age, you say, and the research shows to pay attention to the needs of other people, to, e- to right. even just look and say what needs to be done and how can I be helpful. And that helpfulness is something that's so in their in their value system um, acknowledged and prioritized the way that we would put like, you know, reading, reading writing and arithmetic or that's health right. or something. And, we, and as a culture, we just put, we're like, no, 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 no. Just go be smart. We, we don't ask kids to do anything or we, or we... <laughs> We, we push them off when they even want to. And then we get so mad at 12 when we ask them to help that they aren't interested. And we've spent 12 years discouraging them from it. That's exactly right. You know, it's really interesting because in many, many cultures, not just the ones in the book, parents actually ask children to do tasks starting from the time that they can walk. So moms will say, or dads will say like, oh, you start requesting their help when they can walk. So like, go get me my shoes, go grab the spoon, right? Like these very tiny, tiny, but useful tasks. And, and they actually do this just like we're, we're reading and to, to babies, right? They're doing this because they're, they're teaching the child to be helpful. They're teaching the child to work as a family. Um, and then you're right. And by the time the kid's 12, they've been helping the whole time. It's second nature, right? And, but in many ways we do the opposite. We exempt them we say, oh, they're just babies. They're not, what could they do, right? Um, and then we discourage it. They run over and grab, I remember Rosie would run over when I'm doing the dishes and grab the sprayer and she, you know, she'd start and I would say, get out, you know, you're making a mess, you know, go back to playing. And in 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 the Maya moms, in, and a lot of moms around the world would, would say, okay, you're making a mess, but thank you for your help. Here, wash this dish, Right. They would give them a task. They would give them a tiny little task that they could accomplish. 
And over time, those tasks grow, right? But they are welcome. And if the if the task is if the, the activity is too dangerous, like fire, they'll tell them to watch. Oh, okay, not yet. You're not you're not there yet, but watch. Watch what I'm doing. Learn what I'm doing. And and, and you're right. You're completely right. It's kind of the opposite of what we do a lot of times. Yeah, the, the other thing I noticed too is, and, and tracking it to how our modern day lives look like here, because obviously you're having to take this learning back to, you know, 2020 San Francisco, right? Like in right. <laughs> um, and, but, but you said, you know, that we, that uh, in the example that you just gave, please don't make the misunderstanding that that these ancient cultures, these heritage parenting styles, they're not permissive. She was corrected. She she was corrected from, uh, you know, you're not going to spray the water all over. We're not going to go to chaos. We're going to be corrected. But it's not it's not it's not punitive. And then there's That's this right. redirection to kind of meeting the child where they're at, giving them the appropriate task. And and so you were saying like even in our culture where. Or in that culture where the kids watch and they mentor and they see what the parents are doing, well, it's fine if like you have to learn the hunt and you have to learn how to make the tortilla or or whatever. But you know we're here and we're like accountants and lawyers and doctors and we kind of our kids don't watch us do these things. You know we hire housekeepers and dog walkers and whatever. And you're saying no, like your kids can still learn about your work. There's still ways that they can understand at their age appropriate level and participate in your work. So give some of those examples. Oh yeah. That was a really great advice. This is so fantastic because a lot of, I thought at the beginning too this, like, oh, well I type at the computer all day. Like, what is she going to learn? You know? Um, But then I remember watching a Maya mom weave for like four hours. And how boring is that? It's just like, she sits at the loom and does, you know, and I was like, and the kid just sat there and the kid entertained itself himself. And it was like, well, my work is not, my work is just the same. I'm sitting there. And so I was like, well, maybe Rosie can just sit here while I work and she can see I'm not watching videos. I'm typing. I'm like, and she started like being interested in my, in the book. And I started, you know, saying she started being interested in the illustrations and she started drawing pictures and making her own book. And like, and yeah, it's not that exciting, but she just being around, she's learning so much. Or, you know, when I'm on the radio, I record and she'll come over and listen to me record and then try to record. And like this, it, it's, it's just tiny little things. They want, they want to be into in our world. And just opening that world just like a little tiny bit to them is magical. It was, it is magical. They want to be close and it builds connection. And so like, she'll, you know, she'll staple things for me. She'll, you know, I'll ask her questions about like, oh, I'm doing this story. Like, and she'll, she'll come up with great answers and great, great questions for me to ask. So I think it doesn't take much, you know, it doesn't, and they don't need entertaining. Like I've watched so many kids and parents just work and the work's not that exciting. You know, it's really not a lot of it is a grind and the, the kids just, they parents are confident that the kid knows what to do without the parent intervening. You know, there's a really interesting study. I don't even think it's in the book, but they looked at like in, in many cultures, parents, the kids are around people all the time, right? So they're rarely by themselves, but the parents aren't interacting with the child at every moment. They respond to the child. So the child comes over, they respond, but the the parent isn't there instructing or playing. And they actually measured it in one of the hunter-gatherer communities in the Philippines. I think the parent interacted with the child 10% of the time. And so it's this very calm, peaceful coexistence, right? Where the kid is not bothering the parent and the parent's not bothering the kid. When we need each other, we can interact. But it's, it's really about valuing that 
that calmness in that, in that no need for simulation. Like I'm here, I'm working, you're there, you're doing your thing. And it's, it's, it, to see it is, is, um, is really incredible to be honest. I, I saw this in Tanzania with the Hadzabe. We saw this father sit by the fire with his five-year-old. I don't know, two hours. Like they just sat there like two hours in, in, they talk some, but it was, it was so calm and, and there was no conflict. And I was like, have I spent two hours with Rosie and not had like that type of conflict free existence, you know? Um, and that's really what the last part of Hunt Gathered Parent is about is like finding that peacefulness with, with your children. And, and we do it now, we do it now. We go to the park or, you know, in the car and, and it's wonderful. It, it, it really has transformed the way we are together. And um, yeah, <laughs> we can do it in a modern, we can do it in a modern family. It, um, oh, we absolutely can. The, the context yes, can. Can, can, yeah, the, the principles in the book, people, and you, you give them those little bridges to what that might look like in, in a, in a North American family structure in work environment or whatever. And uh, which is great. So describe um, the, 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 meta, the, acronym team then because that was you yeah. kind of pulled it all together with this yeah. this new way not weird yeah. way the team way the team way right I came up with this just because it is true that if you look everywhere almost everywhere on every continent for sure you can find this way of parenting and so team is and you are trying to work together with the child instead of controlling them so you're trying to put them on your team is what I say but the acronym is so the T is for togetherness so it's about working, working together with the child, being together with the child. And I have to say, it's not always the parent. And in fact, in these, in many, many cultures, the parent plays a much smaller role in the child's life, but it's just being with somebody that cares about the child. So a grandma, an aunt, a friend, a neighbor, an other child, other children play enormous roles in, in young kids' lives, but it's just about valuing that togetherness. So instead of doing the chores separately, you go do this and I'll go in the kitchen and do this. It's about, okay, we're all going to make everyone's bed at the same time together. We're all going to fold all the clothes together. You know, on the weekends, we're going to do things together as a family, not child-centered things, but things that we all want to do and we can all participate in. So T is together and really valuing that that's how kids are built. That is, there's very good evidence that kids are made to work together with their family instead of forcing the child to, you know, really push this independence on children. The E, which I think is the hardest one, and I'm always want to put it at the end, but the E is this idea of encouraging a child instead of forcing um, things on children. And this is where like the middle section of Hunt Gather Parent gives you all these tools that to sculpt behavior, change behavior, teach values without forcing, without punishment, without yelling, and without um, bribes. You know, um, we, we, there are so many, so like you said, this is not a permissive parenting. It's just, it's, it's just, it comes with the assumption that the child has to learn. And so we're going to give them a space to learn and we're going to make it clear what they need to learn. And, um, and that happens over time. And again, there's all these tools that we don't, we don't really use that, that are, in, that are in the book for encouraging versus forcing. Yeah. Or, or some parents may have had success with something and didn't know why it was successful mm. and that it was a tool to know that when a moment comes up in their parenting, that they can actually say, oh, physical touch. 
you know, yes. I, the, you know, oh, I, I need to, I need to spin them around or tickle them or, or, yes. or give silly kisses or raspberries on their bellies. They might have done that once and they diffused a moment, but they didn't know they were from they didn't come from a conscious place but yeah so they had a one-off and it was lucky but it's like no you actually did you did a tool you did a technique this is why it works and here's when something comes around again you could try that again so it's so nice that they're itemized and they're explained so that they people feel resourced when they finish reading the book that they've got options I mean touch is so powerful right so Rosie had a really hard time with tantrums and I was just coming at it with like what's wrong? Are you okay? And like, just this high, high energy. And then I just saw like how like a, like a, the gentle touch on her shoulder, like was so much more powerful than any of those words. And, or like you said, like, you know, some tension will be building and then, you know, I'll just like pretend to eat her arm, like, you know, like, just like, just, you know, some, I mean, every time we touch somebody, right. It has this incredible power over our bodies. Um, so yeah, there's all these tools and most of them are nonverbal, which is like, we, we, we focus so much. We think that like words can fix everything. Right. But a lot of times words are stimulating for young children. They don't understand them. It's high energy. It feels like a lecture. Um, and so I will actually go through these times. If there's like conflict in our house or it feels tense, I'll be like, we need a 15 minute silence. We all need to be quiet for 15 and we work our way up to like 45 minutes. Like it's, you know, and sometimes Rosie will keep talking, but I'm going to be quiet. And, and even just having that silence is incredibly powerful with, with young children because it calms, it calms them down, you know, and a lot, a lot about the book is about that. It's about teaching because a lot of parents in the world think they need to teach the child to calm themselves down, that children aren't made, built calm, (laughs) that you have to show them through modeling and practice. You have to give them opportunity. You have to allow them to practice calming themselves down. Um, Well, and to your point, how do we expect a three-year-old to handle their emotional regulation when we in the moment are getting angry and we can't handle our emotional regulation. Exactly. <laughs> and we're we expecting so them much. to be better than us at it, you know? So yeah. it starts, it starts with us. And I love that you, you know, you spend quite a bit of time talking about managing anger and, and the, uh, the parent needing to harness some of those skills uh, yeah. of how to control that anger. And really, again, like the less is more. And I, one of my favorite lines from, was from that part of the book where you said, Think about Mr. Rogers on drugs or stoned or something. Yeah. Think of Mr. Rogers stoned. I'm thinking I will never forget that. The next time I feel a flare up of of anger, I am so going to think of you. (laughs) It's pretty funny. I mean, I think, I think the calmness that, that, that I'm talking about is something that I rarely see in our, in our culture. You know, it really is. Um, yeah, Mr. Roger Stone. <laughs> well, but but also too, though, you're sort of saying it's not about us suppressing the anger. Yes. It's not yes. about us not letting the child know we're angry. That's it's right. really about reinterpreting the situation to, to, again, to be more child-centric in the sense of saying they haven't learned this yet. This isn't, this isn't the story of disobedience. This isn't the narrative of disrespect, which is a very Western weird way of interpreting it. Right. right. Uh, But to to say they haven't learned this yet, this is age appropriate, this will come. And then, then we don't have the same reasons. We, we, the narrative, the story of why they're behaving the way they are, doesn't get us triggered like personal and, and we're parenting wrongly or something. Yeah, this is a huge point of the book and a huge transformation for me. I, you know, I would ask, 
one time I asked, like, so Rosie would hit me around age three and I was trying to figure out from talking to the Inuit parents in the Arctic about, you know, what do you do? What do you do? You know, she's pushing my buttons. She's, you know, she's manipulating me. She's, and some of the moms would laugh at me. They're like, she's not manipulating you. She's two, she's three. Like she doesn't under, and, 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 you know, they would say she's just too young to understand what she's doing. Right. And, um, and, and so they see children as these like irrational, illogical beings who don't have reason or understanding. And so why would you get upset at them? They're just irrational. It's your job to teach them um, understanding and emotional regulation. And if you get angry at them, all you're doing is acting like a child, right? All you're doing is is is, is modeling that and, and, and stooping to their level. Um, and so, yeah, it's really about like, learning to have less anger to the child versus suppressing it. Because, you know, I, oh, hang on, there's a, there's a dog. Um, and dogs bark, and we expect them to bark. That's their job, to protect you. They're, he's not trying to wreck our interview. This doesn't mean you're a bad pet owner. That's right. We even t- I think I even talk about that in the book, how, like, oh. I realized that about the dog, that, like, I was trying to stop it from barking, but it's kind of the natural. But, yeah, this, I, because a lot of this, the, the psychologists and neuroscientists I talk to say controlling your anger in the moment is actually really hard. Like, once you're angry, it's really hard to, to stop being angry. Um, and the fact that we, like, oh, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> the fact that we, like, ask children to do this is, is incredible, right? That's an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, so, really, what I talk about in the book is this idea of having less anger towards a child in the first place and learning to have less anger. And then then you don't need to control it, right? The anthropologist Jean Briggs has an amazing anecdote where she's living with an Inuit family in, in the 60s, I think. And the child is hitting the mom with a spoon in the face. And Jean Briggs is like, the mom hardly responds to it. And she said, I think the, the mother turns to Jean and says, she has no reason. And that was just it. Like... <laughs> Like she doesn't understand and that's it. And, um, and, 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 and to be honest, I've gotten not to that point, but I've gotten to the point where Rosie can really try to you know, say something hurtful or, or do something that's hurtful. And I can, I can just not respond. And, and that deflate, and that helps her so much better than me getting upset. Or I'll say, Oh, that hurts me. Don't you like me? And, and then she'll, and, sh- and she'll kind of stop and think like, I do like you, right? And she didn't realize that hitting me or what she was doing made me feel like she didn't like me. She didn't even understand that, right? So yeah, those I, I I really appreciated that as a tool too, the asking of the questions because yes. you know, we instead of us sort of hijacking their prefrontal cortex and answering all these questions, if it's supposed to be a learning model, then we want to ask these provocative questions. Do you know this hurts me? Or are you trying to hurt me? Then then that it's like, oh, now they have to do some work. They go, wait yeah. a second, I don't want to hurt them and I'm not mean. And they they're you can they're Computing, that's yeah. the work back on them to figure it out. That's where the growth is going to come from. That's where the education is going to come from. That's right. And actually, one of the words to educate in Inuktitut, the Inuit language, is to cause thought. It means that when you when you educate somebody, you, you're triggering thought. And so a lot of the tools are trying to get the child to think and figure out for themselves. Again, this is encouraging versus for- forcing, right? Um, and so like with a child will do something that's kind of unsafe, you know, like I remember Rosie had some rocks that she was kind of juggling when we were up there. And one of the other little girls that was like nine years old looked at her and said, Rosie, you're going to hurt somebody with the rocks. Right. That's all she said. And then she walked away. It wasn't put the rocks down. Right. She made Rosie think, oh, 
And then of course, Rosie looked at the rocks and put them down. She doesn't want to hurt people. Right. And so, yes, there's these asking questions, like, you know, instead of, I like, I like one time the, 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 one of the kids handed one of the moms in the Arctic, like some trash and the mom said, am I a trash can? Am I a trash can? <laughs> like, you know, like, it's like, I do that one all the time, especially with like Rosie's friends. Cause they're not used to it. Right. But they'll hand me the trash. And I'm like, am I a trash can? Do I look like a trash can? Right. And so it's like, it's like teaching the child, you know, instead of saying, go put it in the trash she's figuring it out for herself. Right. Um, We're so much more, again, coming from that control. We have the wisdom. We're imparting it on the child. We're telling, instructing, controlling, and we're not standing back and asking the provocative questions so that they figure it out. Um, so we had T togetherness, E encouragement, A, uh, autonomy, huge, yeah, huge. And so different from autonomy, not the same as independent as one of yeah. our, one of the Western weird things we do. We're so into this individual, rugged individualism that makes us so isolated and lonely. So c- t- talk about that quality. Yeah. So this is very common among hunter gatherers and likely very old, ancient, right? We all were hunter, all humans started as hunter gatherers. So autonomy is this idea that you, that everyone has a right to make their own decisions, but you have a responsibility to everyone around you. So Rosie actually came up with it. She said, you can do what you want, but you have to be kind, you have to share, and you have to be helpful. So the kids look like they're kind of doing whatever they want, but they're constantly on the lookout to help others. So if the mom says, you know, Angela, come in and, you know, turn the hose on, they run over and they turn the hose on. If they're looking out for their baby brothers, their their younger siblings, right? So there's this constant connection to the group. So it's, it's, it's moment by moment freedom but it's a, it's also a connection, right. And a responsibility to others that the parents have taught them with the like little chores with the inclusion. Right. So I remember when Rosie, when we were up in the Arctic and we were at a drum dance and this little 18 month old kind of waddled over and had a bag of chips. And one of the moms said, give Rosie a chip. And like, and, and the little 18 month old put her hand in the chip and gave Rosie a potato chip. And it was like, she's teaching the child to share right? She's teaching the child to give away starting at 18 months, right? And so she, she didn't force it. And but that's kind of the idea of autonomy. The child is doing really whatever you want, but, the, but, the, but when that child's eight, nine, that child will share the chip, right? The child has learned to be responsible to others and be connected to others. And it's really beautiful because it's like, independence is great. And nobody likes to be controlled. I don't like to be controlled. Why would Rosie want to be controlled? But when you're by yourself, it's lonely, right? So it's this beautiful thing of like freedom and and independence in this context of the group, which is what what we need, right? What we need mentally is relationships and connection. And I think some of those cultures, the interdependence is so woven into like how they relate to the land and how they relate to the seasons and how they, we do need each other because otherwise we will starve. You live in the Arctic, like you can't, nobody goes it alone, right? You That's need to right. huddle next to somebody to stay warm at night or you're going to free. Like, it's just so inherent that we are interconnected with nature and with one another. And we, I think we lose sight of that in, in our Western weird world. You know, I think we need it mentally here. Like maybe we don't need that connection, you know, to have food or to you know survive that sense. But I think mentally we need, we need it. And that's a lot about what I felt like I lost during my childhood in my life is this 
this deep, deep connection, right? It's so mentally important. And, and I think we saw this with COVID, the people that you listen to, listen to how many of these qualities that you've talked about that are essential that didn't work in COVID. Like the fact that we need the mamas, the uncles, and that we you should yeah. only spend 10% of our time just sort of being <laughs> beside our kids. Right. And we're all locked at home and we're like totally on them and we can't get our work done and we're focusing on their homeschooling. And we, we just, people just you know, crumpled in those conditions because they yeah. aren't natural. They're not the way we're supposed to do it. And the same with, with feeling community and connected, which are typical ways of doing that. Unless you were good at zoom and pre-existing relationships that was, <laughs> was really tested during COVID. Right. And we right. Really- it took all those practices and kind of made them even more extreme. And then we could really see how, how detrimental they are. Yeah, for sure. So maybe, the, maybe the timing of your book and the pandemic will just get, give the added eye opener for everyone to reevaluate those parts of their, their life. Right. Yeah. And and I think some, the families here that I know have come to appreciate the other families more, you know, like in our pods and our, in our neighbors, you know, and and see like, Oh, when we work together, like things are, are, are easier for everyone. Right. And I, I hope to carry that on. We have a a little pod that we've been, you know, and I value the other parents a lot more and and that, that's a that's a lot about what we saw in all these cultures is the parents working together. This idea that a mom spends her time all the time with, with the children is is in just her is crazy. It's crazy to people that women in the Arctic would run up to me and be like, I see you here with your child all the time. Can I take her? You need a break. This is not this is I mean, I'm serious. Like it was it, it it's not the way kids evolve to be raised. And it's and and it's hard on the parents, right? It, that's why we're all exhausted. We're doing the work of like five people, basically. Yeah, I think one of the notes was she said, "I think your I think your child's misbehaving because she's sick of you." Yes, <laughs> so, so, yes, yes. I'm pretty like, sure. I'm pretty sure that could have been the diagnosis for my kids a lot of the times too. Uh, they're actually just sick of you. <laughs> okay, right. I mean, I was sick of her, but I hadn't thought that she was sick of me. But she was absolutely right. She's sick of me, right? Yeah. Oh, and that's so again, just again looking at misbehavior. I look, another one of the great lines is is you were saying, you know, misbehaving kids. They're they're underemployed. Nobody likes to be underemployed. Put these kids to work, you know, I right. just, I love that. And it resonates. None of us like to be incompetent and not useful and not have anything meaningful to do. Get That's those right. kids, whatever, washing that plate, putting the stamp on a letter, helping you with your yeah. drawings in your book, whatever, it, you know, whatever it is. It's so tiny so things, tiny, tiny, tiny things are great. No. Are they mo- they're monumental yeah. to them. Right. Yeah. Like it's funny. I call it the responsibility tool, but it totally works. Like Rosie will be acting up and I'll be like, Rosie is is the dog bowl, does the dog bowl empty? No, you know, and, and I'll give her a task to do. And then she's like on board. She's on my team and like things settle down. And it really, that tool works so well because I think it makes them nervous when they like, they don't feel like they're helping, right? Um, yeah. Contributing. Give us the, the M. The M is, 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 is minimal interference. So it's this idea that like, um, that the children, that our knee jerk reaction when children are doing something is to like maximal interference, like is to come in and like show them how to do it and instruct them and even grab something from them that they're doing or push them out of the way. Um, and, and, and actually in all these cultures that we've, that we visited as well as probably throughout human history, parents take the opposite approach. They stand back and they watch the child. And if the child needs help, they will give it, you know, if their child really needs it. Um, but it will be this light touch. It'll be minimal amount. And there's a lot of Western psychological studies that show like the more you interfere with a child, the more you lecture them, the more you 
um, tell them what to do, they lose interest. They lo- they're demotivated. Um, and the more you step back and let them do something, the more that they stick to the task and they are the more likely to return to the task. And so the Mayan moms, um, were a masters at this. And this actually isn't in the book, but if we have time, like this. Yeah. So I was shucking corn with them because everyone was shucking corn and that's what you do. You shuck corn. And I was horrible at it. I couldn't really do it. And all of a sudden I started getting really good at it. And I was like, Oh my God, I can do it now. I can check the corn. And then I looked down and the mom, the mom had prefixed the kernels so that they were easier for me to shuck. <laughs> Which is beautiful. It's beautiful, right? And I didn't know it. So I was like feeling like this amazing, competent person. And like, and she didn't say like, oh no, you know, she, and um, yeah, it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. And I looked over and I kind of shook my head and she smiled and like, and that really is the essence of it. It's like, it's just adding a little bit of help, but the child doesn't even know it's there. And so they feel like they're doing it and they're practicing and they're growing and it's, yeah, it's beautiful when it, when it works. It really, it really is beautiful. Yeah. And that, and that big, the big piece about just acknowledging, you know, I, I oh, thought about that it was such so a great, huge. was, you know, I, we often talk in, um, you know, in the Adlerian training that I'm trained in, we talk about the difference between praise versus encouragement. Mm. Um, but I, the word acknowledgement really resonated when, when you use that word and gave some of the examples to it. And I was thinking about the fact that my, when my daughter was, I think 14, uh, she went with a leadership program to Kenya and uh, she was helping build schools or whatever. And she had an amazing time. And, you know, obviously this transformative kind of experience. And, and she comes back and, and uh, when we were talking about the trip, she said um, the thing about the Maya, the, uh, no, not the, the Maasai. Maasai she said, oh, yeah. yeah, she said, uh, she said, mom, you know, I've never felt so appreciated in my life. Mm. And mm. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy she had that experience. But of course, here I am with the mommy negative talk. Yeah. And I'm like, that's supposed to be one of my core competencies. I'm like trained in the, and, and I thought, you know, um, I, I'm not sure I ever got the full story of how they managed to pull it off. But I would, I, I agree with you. I think even when we think we're on our game, I don't think we do it anywhere, even in the league of the way other cultures yeah. uh, acknowledge and value their children. And, 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 in, and the inclusivity mm, of it, inclusive. you know, we really you know, are I, us and them. You know, we think that appreciating, or I thought that appreciating was saying thank you, right? And and if we go back to the kebab uh, or praise, right? Like, oh, good job, you know? But really what, what I'm talking about in the book is accepting the work, right? Accepting how Rosie did it, maybe fixing it a little bit, but not, but, but accepting her contribution, accepting the kebab. That's how pe- people feel appreciated, right? Is and that's really what acknowledgement is about is, is allowing them to contribute and then accepting their contributions. And, you know, um, yeah, it's different than thank you. I think it's more powerful. I say thank you, but some cultures don't say thank you. The, the appreciation is shown through accepting the work or returning, right? Doing something back, um, which is really powerful. You, you also said that um, sometimes I'll give a gift, but the gift is is not like, you know, not like a chore chart you've been assigned. And if you do it every yeah. day, then you get a, a lollipop at the end of the week or, you know, money, not, not, nothing like that, but there might be some sort of a, a, yeah. a recognition, but it was, you know, for. And it's, it's, a, it's a very group thing from what I understand. It's, it's like the whole family will go and get something together 
you know, or the child will be acknowledged for, for growing or starting to be more helpful. So there's a lot of this talk of like, so a lot of cultures will connect, um, you know, maturity as the praise, like, oh, you're really starting to learn. You're really starting to be a big boy because you've, you've been, you know, you've been accommodito. So that's a big, that's a big phrase in the book. This idea that you, you're able you're able to look around and see what needs to be done. And then you go do it. And they will acknowledge that by saying, Oh, you're really starting to be a comedito. You're really starting to grow up. Um, you know, it's, it's, so it's this, it really is this growth mindset. That's what we would call it. Right. But connecting, acknowledging the maturity and connecting the maturity to helpfulness, generosity, kindness, right. That that's a big, that's a big difference. Right. Um, we think of like, physical milestones and, you know, reading, writing, math, whereas there, there's a lot of connection to growing as in generosity, helpfulness, um, kindness, which I, you know, I think I love that, you know, that's, why not include that in, in, yeah, growth, well, in growth? If you ask parents the qualities they want for their kids, I think there probably is some universal top 10 character traits. Yeah. But we never say, what do I have to conscious? What would it take to make a, ch- a kind child? What would it right. need to be, have a helpful child? We don't actually say, what do right. I need to do? And then we get so surprised. I think it was uh, David Brooks who writes a book. Uh, it's a, a few years old now. But he wrote a book on character. Um, and uh, I think he said that fame is now the number two quality mm-hmm. uh, that if, like fame. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so and some of these things like kindness and helpfulness are like dro- plummeting. Wow. And so we, we, we really do, I think, uh, need to be awo- awakened, awoke, what, yeah. whatever the proper English is there, um, to to how we're being misguided and to know that there are other tried and true and proven with research and proven with, you know, centuries and centuries of felt lived experience yeah. of these things that we, we know do work. And, um, and right. we really do need to question how we're raising our, our kids and start making some changes. So I've, I found the book inspirational and- oh. And, and, and doable. Like, honestly, I, yeah. I, I hope parents, you know, um, th- that it all translates into things that you can do in your home with your kids and you prove it in using the anecdotes for Rosie and how things transformed for you just in the 16 months while you were, you know, on the road and doing all this. And I have to say, I always make this joke, but a lot of the helpful tips will work with adults. <laughs> 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 you can train an, an, a 40 year old person to, um, to, who is not helpful or comedido. You can train them with the tips in the books <laughs> good for, because good I for, have. <laughs> yeah, for the, all those HR people and people that have team leadership issues or marital issues, people are people no matter what the age, right? <laughs> yeah. And we all want to, we all really do want to help in, in work as a team. I think people really do and kids especially and I think you can look at a little child as as being manipulating and you know pushing buttons or you can look at this thing that's really trying to help and doesn't know how and it's my job to teach her right and and that mind shift you know is so good for the relationship at least that's what I saw with Rosie like once I shifted that mind then I'm on her team and she comes onto my team right versus this adversarial she's trying to hurt me or control me, you know? Yeah. So. I, yeah. I, that, the, the, the flow collaboration versus the fighting for control and dominance 
you yeah. know, moment, moment to moment. And it is yeah. the way we, we are wired and we, you know, and yeah. we do need to create those environments. It's, it's amazing. So is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners uh, hear about before they, of course, are going to rush right out and, and they're so excited about the subject matter now? We'll put up the link, obviously, to, to, your, uh, to your book and, and where else people can find you. But anything else that you really want to make sure that uh, we got covered today? I mean, I think you hit on a good point that I think parents kind of know some of this stuff, but there's been all these other voices and ideas that kind of, you know, are louder. But, you know, it's like I say in the book, like, try this stuff see and pay attention to, and see if it works. And if, if it seems better, keep trying it. But if it doesn't, try something else, right? Like, you know, you whenever you talk to, whenever we talk to moms in the Arctic or Tanzania about kids, they always say, well, everyone thinks everyone's different. You know, I'll say like, what age? And they're like, I don't know. I look at the child. And so, you know, experiment. There's not really a right way to do it. These are very broad ideas. And a lot of what I do is try something and and see if Rosie responds to it or my husband responds to it. And then if not, I'll try something else, you know. So there's enough ideas in there to to give you a huge, huge range. So but but what a great great example, though, about it's also if if we were working to value our kids and collaborate with them, we would pay more attention so that we would start to notice, oh, you know, with Rosie, when I make my little cookie monster nibbling up her arm, she laughs and it diffuses this moment. But with this other kid at the park, he might think that I am, that that I'm being silly and he doesn't doesn't do silly and that's going to land flat as a pancake for him. And so- You know, no, that that is being awake and alert and figuring how to cooperate because we're all, in a sense, a, a little bit different. But you're right. There's there's lots to learn about our kids. There's lots they're trying to teach us if we would. Yes, <laughs> if we would listen. Yeah, and listen. I mean that's what collaborating is, right? Is paying attention to the other person and then building off of that instead of resisting it, right? That so you're exactly right by paying attention and seeing how kids respond. That's collaborating with them, right? Yeah. Um, so. And I guess if we, you know, let, let go of some of our fear that, that by, and I, that's, I, so you, you gain some courage in this book and that if you, if you try to honor the child, invite them in, you're, you're going to end up where you're going, yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. the, I think the exactly. fear is that you're going to get walked over. It's going to be too permissive. Like all, the fear comes up and proofs in the pudding. So I love that. Just start small, try experiments, yeah. give it a go. You'll, you'll know if it feels better. You'll know if you feel better, not yelling. You'll know if the tantrum <laughs> went away more quickly than if you had. Um, That's right. Yeah. And if the kid is disrespecting you, you tell them. Yes. Yeah. Disrespectful. Who's being disrespectful? You know, I just tell Rosie, you're making me feel bad. You're not respecting me. You know, you're walking all over me. I'll tell her that, you know, I feel like, I feel like you're walking, you know, a lot of the moms said, you just have to tell them and it doesn't have to be super emotional. I think that's another thing. You don't have to be like, Oh my God, you're walking all over me, you know, or like get really upset. It's like, you just state it, you know, it's not, a. again, they're trying to figure it out. They don't know. Right. So I, yeah. I think, you know, the that maybe it is because there is so many years being passed down from grandmother to great grandmother to whatever, and because if it's been in your culture, you know that that's how the auntie is going to do it, and that's how the right. teacher at school is going to do it. And there's been this tradition; they must have that calm confidence. Whereas I think you're right that we've been told so many different things. We heard a little bit here and a little research there, and we have very shallow grounds. And when you don't have that confidence, then it's hard to stand in that. Buddha presence or that 
calm my and mama way and to use very few words and just a little facial expression and get on and, and have faith that it's like, that will be sufficient. You know? Um, Yeah. Not only sufficient, I think it will, at least for Rosie, I think it will actually work better (laughs) than, than a lot of words and a lot of energy, right? But there's a lot of data, right? That kids energy and emotion mirrors ours. Right. And so I can just, when Rosie's had, you know, she doesn't have many tantrums now, but when she used to, I, I could just stand there. Like I watched one mom, a little boy had a tantrum. He just, the mom just stood there and stuck her hand out to him. That's it. She, you know, she didn't leave. She just let him have a, t- get upset. She was there. Can you calm down? Yeah. You know, it's like emotional autonomy. That's what I call it. Just let the kid have it. You're there. The kid's going to be okay. You know, you're and um, yeah, less is more. I think with tantrums, less is more. Just being there is, you know, a lot of times all they all need. need to do. Yeah. 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 And then they practice calming themselves down. That's right on their own. Right. Exactly. It is the skill. So, and it does come parents. It does come. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it does, exactly. Uh, yeah. but, not, but not, but not, it's not, things don't just age out on their own. It's not like, well, we'll just wait and maybe they'll outgrow it. It's like, no, there's really a conscious, uh, we are teaching, right. We're modeling, yes, we're teaching, we're modeling, giving them we're opportunity. That's right. All the time. And, and That's we're right. just in North American culture again, for some reason, I, what did you give the example? We wouldn't expect a 18-month-old to know that two plus two equals four. So why do we think that an 18-month-old should be able to handle their emotions when they're disappointed that their ice cream fell off the cone That's and landed right. on the sidewalk? It's like, not yet. It's not yet, exactly. Not yet. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, so um, where can people, uh, besides I'm going to post the the uh, link to, to bu- buying the, the yeah. book, but where else can people follow I you do. and learn more? Yes, I'm on Twitter. At, it's at Foodie Science. Um, but you can also email me. I love emails. I'm at mduclef, M-D-O-U-C-L-E-F-F at npr.org. And I love getting emails and I will respond. And um, yeah. <laughs> Great. I'll make sure those are in the show notes for, for people. And, and you'll be hearing from me. But oh. please keep writing. Keep Please keep putting all this good information out to the world. And I really appreciate your time. And uh, um, good luck with the launch of all of this. I hope everybody picks up a copy and reads it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I hope, I really hope, I think it will, I think it will, I know it will help. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, Canadians, at least actually we're doing quite well here, this podcast in Canada, but we also have a great strong following um, in in Bulgaria and Romania and um, some of the other places where I've uh, spoken and traveled and have some great loyal followers as well. So getting the word out to the world. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Take care. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 